This is Teach for All Talks, a conversation with global education thought leaders. Today's episode features Wendy Kopp in conversation with author and investigative journalist Amanda Ripley. Ripley is a staff writer for The Atlantic and author of numerous books and articles on education, including the best-selling book, The Smartest Kids in the World. Thank you all for joining, um, and thank you, Amanda, for being here with us. Um, I'm particularly excited about this talk because I just think there's no more thoughtful education journalist and thinker and writer, and also because I'm so excited about your new book, which I assume you all know, The Smartest Kids in the World and, and how they got that way. Um, those of you at Teach for All no doubt remember um, Amanda as uh, one, the thoughtful journalist with us in, in Santiago. Um, and so I'm just excited to have an hour to um, hear your insights on the issues we face here in the US, the issues we see around the world. Um, and I hope you all will be very much a part of this discussion. I've got various questions, but we really want to invite you all to, and I'll pause at various moments so that you can come up and ask your questions if you're here. And uh, for those of you who are you know, watching from afar, thank you for joining as well. Um, please also submit your questions via Yammer or Twitter. I'm at Wendy Kopp, Amanda's at Amanda Ripley, and we're using the hashtag AskAmanda. Um, so, uh, so Amanda, so, so tell us about your new book and sort of why you chose to approach it from the perspective of three American kind of exchange students studying abroad. Well, I kept hearing about these countries that we all hear about, Finland, Korea, these countries that year after year have these great test results and everything's so perfect. And I just, I couldn't visualize it. It didn't seem real to me. So I wanted to know, what is it like to be a kid in these places, you know? And also, how did these countries get this way? Because they weren't always so smart. I mean, Finland had a 10% high school graduation rate in the 1950s. 10% is not good. And now they're 90% they're well above that of the United States. So that, that transformation is actually in some ways more interesting than looking at them now. Um, so, so I knew I wanted to understand that mystery of, of change over time and what it's like to be a kid there. But I knew that the, the only way I'd have any hope of doing that would be through students, with the help of students to help, because you know, I had a ton of data. I mean, there's a lot of research and a lot of adults talking about this, all coming to totally contradictory <laughs> conclusions. But there are these blind spots that students can really help you fill in. So I wanted kids to follow, but I knew that it would be ideal if these kids could compare what they were seeing abroad to what they saw in their schools and homes back in the US. And luckily, there are 30,000 teenagers who every year go abroad from the US or come into the US for uh, study abroad programs. So that's how I found those three students. I knew I wanted to go to Finland and Korea and Poland because um, they're three very different models for getting to the top. Finland is the utopia model of uh, a country that you know, has invested in, in quality over quantity and the students don't do as much homework as our students do and uh, as, we, as we know, uh, they do fewer standardized tests and they get to this very impressive place where virtually all kids are learning higher order thinking in math, reading, and science regardless of background. 
And then Korea is kind of the extreme case of the pressure cooker model that you see all over Asia, where kids are just putting in a ton of hours, and there's a lot of stress and a lot of focus on, on test scores. And then Poland's interesting because it has recently improved, despite having a pretty high child poverty rate of 15%, which is comparable to that of the US. And they've had significant gains over the past 10 years, although they're still not at the level of Finland. And, and so what did they find? I mean, I'm actually sort of wondering if we can't, can go country by country. Like, what, what did they find in, in, let's start with Finland. Finland. So Kim went from rural Oklahoma to rural Finland. And uh, one of the funny things is, you know, if you're not going on an orchestrated junket as a journalist to these places, you just like parachute into a random school. They don't look like they do in some of the um, <laughs> stories that, and this is what Kim noticed her first day. The school was sort of like, you know, gray, worn brick, and there was a clock outside that had clearly stopped working many, many years before. And, you know, it just didn't look like this Nordic paradise that she had imagined. Um, and actually, all over the world, in, in the high performing countries, there is the facilities are typically unimpressive compared to those in the United States, even, even in, in some of our, you know, lower income, underperforming schools. There just is typically more technology in the classroom, and um, that's something that the kids noticed right away as well. So mm. she gets there. Uh, obviously, there's a long period of coming up to speed on Finnish, <laughs> which was challenging. But, uh, but she, as she kind of settles in, she begins to notice something interesting, which is that the kids in her classes seem to care more about school. Mm. And, they seem to care more even than her friends back in her honors classes in Oklahoma. And she's perplexed by this. Even, even the kid who she's pretty sure is coming to school stoned every day is like doing his homework. Do you know what I mean? And she's, you know, kind of like, what is up with this? So she actually says to two of the girls one day, the Finnish girls, and they're, they're in a break between classes. Um, oh, and they also have a lot more freedom. She's constantly had these free periods. And actually, when I surveyed hundreds of exchange students, they agreed that American kids had less autonomy in general from their parents and their schools than, than back home. And they complain a lot about this, actually, uh, that they have to get a pass to go to the bathroom and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, it, she kept having these free periods where she could just leave the school and no one, no one would arrest her or anything. Um, and so she was in a free period. She asked two of these Finnish girls, why do you care so much about school? Because she could tell they weren't you know, intellectual heavyweights. They, she seemed pretty normal to her compared to the kids back in Oklahoma. But they seemed bought into it in a way that was strange to her. And they couldn't understand the question at first. But eventually they said, well, you know, it's school. I mean, how else are we going to get into a decent university and then get a good job? Which, I mean, there's a certain <laughs> ring of common sense to that. But it's in, she, you know, then she began to ask herself, well, why, why don't? my peers back in Oklahoma yeah. make that connection. So interesting. I want to pursue that in a minute. But OK, South Korea. South Korea, we had Eric, who left Minnesota, which unlike Oklahoma is a very high performing state, as, as you guys know, and actually one of the top two highest performing states in the country or, uh, compared to countries around the world, along with Massachusetts. And he went to a, a very high performing suburban high school. 
where he was in the international baccalaureate track. So we're really talking, you know, the best the U.S. can offer in some ways. And he went to Busan, South Korea, which is a big city on the water. And he loved Korea, loved the food and the culture and the joyfulness of Koreans. And, um, but as soon as he got to school, he realized he'd made a terrible mistake um, because these kids were just studying night and day. And the Korean kids I met, and you, I'd tell me if you've had this experience, I mean, they were like, incredibly friendly and excited to see you. And you know, the stereotype is that Koreans are like the Italians of Asia, right? And they would be like, so excited to talk to you. But then they'd have to hunker down, and they go to school all day, and then they go to school in hagwons or after-school tutoring academies until 10 at night, and then they do online. So there's, there's a real kind of heaviness, like a sense of oppression that they all complain about very openly, but seem to be unable to disrupt. Yeah. And, but during the actual school day, this exchange student didn't quite experience the level of right. rigor that he would have thought. No, one of the things he noticed in his very first class is that when he turned around at some point and he noticed that half the class was asleep, because Did you they... all hear this? I mean, this is in <laughs> South Korea. Yeah. This is the place that's like number two in the world on the pizza. Mm -hmm. So just fascinating. Yeah, and if you have your, who's been, has anyone visited schools in Korea? I know you have, right? Yeah. Um, you, you routinely do walk by and see a third of the kids asleep, and they're not like dozing off sleeping. They're like flat out, <laughs> heads on the desk. It, it's, it's bizarre to see, and the teachers up there lecturing as if it's not happening. Um, but the reason they're so tired and the reason the teacher kind of lets them sleep usually is because they've been up so late studying. So it's like this crazy backwards logic in an incredibly inefficient way, obviously, to, to learn. So fascinating. Um, and, and it does make you wonder, because you always see people saying South Korea has such a great education system because they attract the top 5% of their you know, university graduates into teaching, but then like, the reality is maybe slightly, I mean, that is who they attract, but yet yeah. it's not Well, really and that's primarily, my understanding, that's primarily in the elementary years. So the primary school teachers is very selective, um, and then not as much in the high school mm -hmm. years. But it is impossible to disaggregate what's leading to Korea's PISA yeah. scores, if it's the Hagwans or their public system. And the, in, there's been a, the government did a big survey of Korean kids, and they pretty much universally uh, preferred their hagwon, their, their tutors, mm -hmm. their after-school teachers, who basically reteach all the same subjects in what look like schools mm -hmm. with, with even worse facilities. Um, but the emphasis is not on the facilities. And, and they, they feel like those teachers are more prepared, more responsive to them, more worried about helping them improve. The hagwons are really interesting if crazy kind of laboratory in, in a free market for education. They're very aggressive in pushing information to parents and kind of tracking where kids are and trying to help them improve because their, their revenue is based on the student's test score growth. Um, and Poland. In Poland, so Poland, <laughs> Tom is the student I followed. He was from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and he went to Poland for a year. He basically wanted to get out of his small country town that was very into football, and he was very into like independent films and uh, <laughs> philosophy and you know alternative music. And so he 
decided it would be, it would be cool to go to Poland and study for a year. Um, and now Poland has a 15% child poverty rate, a long history of trauma and dislocation, a lot of distrust for the central government. So in some ways, is, is a more interesting case than, than Finland. The school he went to was in a neighborhood that everybody called the Bermuda Triangle because it was kind of a dodgy neighborhood and occasionally people would go in and just disappear. <laughs> they would never come back. And so um, that was kind of interesting to see. Again, the facilities were kind of like a school in the 1950s. It, worse, actually. Um, there was no cafeteria, for example, let alone, I mean, there were no smart boards or um, <laughs> anything like that. So like, very bare bones. The thing that was mysterious about Poland is that they had gone through a series of major reforms in the year 2000, 2001, and they'd gone from below average for the developed world in their test score results for 15-year-olds to at or above average, and now are performing at the same level and slightly above US teenagers, despite spending 50% what we spend per people. And, and, and like from being inside this, that school, like what, what was the big takeaway there about what what might be driving the progress? In, in all of these cases, but particularly Poland and Korea, the student drive is very high, right? Yeah. So if you imagine yeah. that all of this is a complex kind of alchemy of many yeah. things, right? Like teaching quality, um, principal quality, poverty, uh, diversity, politics, union, contract. I mean, there's probably, what, a thousand different things that yeah. go into. One of them, for sure, is the student drive, like how, how motivated kids are, often through their parents, um, to get a good education, which I think is more malleable than we assume. Like that feels very fixed and immutable, which is depressing, but I, I actually think it is malleable, and so that's encouraging. Yeah, well, this is just super fascinating because, first of all, it's the thing that we think differentiates, among other things, but the most successful teachers. They're, they're teachers who can actually get their kids invested that, right? in working incredibly hard to get a great education. Right, and it makes um, everything easier. It's like this virtuous, virtuous yeah. cycle once you can yeah. create that, right? So how, but what's your sense of where that's coming from in these other countries and, and right. how we would foster more of it in countries like the US and other countries in which Teach for All works uh, where it doesn't seem so pervasive? Right. Um, but an important one. Yeah, like I this mean, seems this, like this is might it. be the key. Right, <laughs> this is it. So the unifying theory that I have, the working theory, which may or may not be right and is surely incomplete, is that one reason, not the only reason, that kids take school more seriously is when it is more serious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds pretty obvious. But yeah. I really think that kids pick up on signals right, about whether something is bogus or whether something is for real. And we have a lot of bogus rhetoric per capita in our country, right? Uh, a lot of countries do. We're not alone. I mean, to be clear, like, we are, we are sort of okay. Like, we do better in reading, worse in math. Like, we're not, it's easy to get hyperbolic about this. Our, our worst trait by far is the disparity we have based on income, which is, um, definitely below average at this point. Worse, I should say, than, than the rest of the developed world. But uh, it could be worse, as I don't need to tell you. Um, 
So this idea that kids pick up on signals. Let me give you an example. Finnish exchange students that I interviewed who had come to the US, um, and American exchange students who had gone to Finland, said things to me like, you know, we knew that it was incredibly hard for our teachers to get into education college. Like, to become teachers is really, really hard. It's like getting into MIT here right now. That's how selective the universities are that offer teacher training. And they knew that. And they knew that it was a very rigorous process. So they didn't always like their teachers. I saw plenty of unimpressive teachers and principals in Finland. They had teachers they liked, teachers they didn't. They had homework they complained about. <laughs> they, had, they complained a lot about tests, actually, which is ironic, because there are tests uh, in Finland, despite what you hear. Um, and, oh, I wanted to uh, So we have to get back to that. But, uh, but there's a credibility there, right? If you know that this is for real, that these teachers had to fight pretty hard to get to, to be teachers, and therefore, they're paid a little more. They're given a little more autonomy. There's less kind of nonsense going on. Again, this sort of virtuous cycle. Then it's easier to buy into the premise that this matters, right? I was on this panel last night with Amanda. And this, this is the thing that, that she said that just most has, like, I've been thinking about since. Because just this idea that if we simply selected all teachers based on higher standards, there would be this catalytic effect of that on so many yeah. other things, which is just a fascinating concept. Right, because you know better than I do that just selecting based on GPA or test scores is not a way to get to greatness, yeah. right? But, but in addition to leading you to teachers who have a stronger academic background themselves, it sends this message to everybody else. So Finland's union had ads they ran years ago that said, Finland has the best educated teachers in the world. That's all it said, and it's true. And imagine if you could just say that, like the, 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 the resonance that that creates so that when you know, your president stands up and says, education's important and teaching is hard, you know, suddenly that's not just bullshit, right? Because that's actually true. If, <laughs> If yeah. you know you are not educating twice as many teachers as you need in ed schools of highly variable quality and not giving them enough on-the-job coaching mm -hmm. and all the things that we and most countries do, yeah. So, so, so we we have one prescription right now for how to drive drive a culture that that really values education. Like, kids take school more seriously when it's serious. Are, are there other things? Do you think? Well, I think there's other ways for school to be serious. I think when you have Fewer standardized tests that are smarter. Mm -hmm. Kids pick up on that. I think, you know, Americans, I know it, it's hard to make these generalizations, and I know that this isn't true in a lot of the schools <coughs> you work in, but Americans rank number one in the world for saying that they routinely get high grades in math. Um, there is a kind of culture of unwarranted praise that, you know, we've all heard about. That again, kids know when it's not for real, right? <laughs> And it chips away at the credibility of the enterprise, I think. Mm -hmm. So having more serious work that's worth doing, less homework that's just stupid, right? Mm -hmm. So all that kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, so it's, it's more than just one thing that adds credibility to the, to the whole endeavor. Yeah, and, and you've written and talked about the role, the different role that you see parents playing in some places. And yeah. I wonder if that connects to this or yeah. if that's, or what I think, think so, yeah. So 
you, when you go to schools in Finland and Korea, one person you don't run into typically are parents. <laughs> you don't see them in the schools. Um, they don't, when I asked a Finnish woman who has two daughters in elementary school, I said, what does your school ask you to do? Um, and she said, what? What do you mean? <laughs> and, you know, I have to get my kids to school on time. And I said, do they ask you to donate money? Do they ask you to do fundraisers? Do they ask you to volunteer for sports? And she was mystified by this concept. Um, they don't ask them to do anything. What they do, what you do see parents doing in these countries is really coaching their kids from a young age at home in learning the way we, some of us coach our kids in sports, you know, with a real kind of, kind of regimented, not necessarily miserable process. There's been some great studies actually on immigrant parents to the US and how they, they've looked at preschools where they have half, you know, white American parents and half Asian American parents, very similar in every other way. And you can see ma major differences in what they're doing at home. So the, the white parents, again, ridiculous generalization, will buy the kid like one of those placemats that has numbers on it. And they'll be like, all right, my work here is done. And the <laughs> Asian parents are like, playing games with numbers with their kids every night yeah. while they're cooking dinner. And there's like a place on the counter where the kid sits that has their like workbooks and their pencils and their, and you know, this can go too far, right? Yeah. In a way, the American version, the Asian American version of it is, is less extreme because yeah. they're kind of balanced out by the culture. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, let's take a few questions. If anyone here wants to ask a question, you can come up to, to the mic. Um, so from Sarah Beth Berman, who's the head of um, public affairs for Teach for All, do higher performing education systems pay their teachers more in general, and do they have less contentious relationships with their unions? Okay, so this is a trivia question. Does anyone know what country pays their teachers the most in the world? You can shout it out. What do you guess? Japan. Japan. Good guess. No. Huh? No. Although I like the counterintuitive. Um, Spain. <laughs> Did you know this? <laughs> yes, and the prize goes to Marie. So Spain pays its, its teachers the most in the world, but has consistently unimpressive outcomes, interestingly. Also, Spain ranks first in the world for the percentage of teachers who say they never have gotten feedback from their principal at 60%. Never. <laughs> never, ever. And the worldwide average is 22%. But now we're going off in a tangent. The other question is a really good one, too, about, yeah, I do think the high, highest performing countries and the most kind of the least dysfunctional systems, like Finland, do have a less adversarial relationship with their unions. Mm -hmm. um, they all have unions, but the quality of that relationship varies a lot. But wait, so like in, in these three, Poland, Finland, and South Korea, do they pay their teachers more? Um, Poland does not, but Korea and Finland do. But it's not wildly more. Um, yeah. It's not like out of sight. It's, you know, I looked at Kim's teacher in Oklahoma and Kim's teacher in rural, in Pietasari, Finland. And I believe the teacher in, who was about the same seniority, the teacher in Finland was making like $7,000 more a year when you have like purchasing power parity. So it wasn't wildly more. The difference here, of course, is that we are competing in some ways with professions that make just an obscene amount of money, which is not the case in Finland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
you all want to introduce yourselves when you. I'm Deb from Teach for All, marketing director. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your the parents concept that you were talking about, and I read the school bake sales article. And I'm a public school parent in New York City. I have a one kid in elementary school and another who just started middle school. Both are pretty progressive public schools, um, but. We, at least in this city, and most cities, I think, or places in the US, don't really have that choice about mm -hmm. um, volunteering in the school and working on homework with our kids at home, because uh -huh. we don't raise money for our school. Uh -huh. We don't have anything beyond the bare bones, because the budgets have been cut right. so much. Right. And also, our school really values parent participation, right. not just in terms of fundraising, but also in terms of like experiencing yep. the school community with your kid and with the, the teachers and parents, and just be, really being a part of it. So beyond suddenly the government like pouring more money into the right. schools, how do we fix that? Well, I think there's a macro level answer and a like individual level answer. I agree with you as, as a public school parent in DC myself, I am constantly, constantly pushed to, to do fundraising and things. And you know, in the back of my head, I'm, I'm still wondering, I'm not sure I have 100% confidence that the money they have is being spent in a totally efficient manner, but um, nobody has asked me to weigh in on that. So I am left to <laughs> bake brownies and so forth. Uh, but we do, you know, we do spend more than all but three countries in the world on K through 12 education. We spend quite a bit more than Finland per pupil. So, you know, not to say we're spending it wisely, um, but there's something else going on here in addition to just a lack of cash. And I sometimes wonder if our principals and our, and our superintendents can lean on parents in, in higher income areas in particular, instead of making um, hard choices that are more efficient and running a complex operation more intelligently. Again, easy for me to say, right? Um, I'm sure it's much harder than I think. But I do know as a counterpoint from New York City, and this is, again, uh, not without controversy, but um, success academies, public charter schools, even Moskowitz bans the parents from fundraising. She said she feels like, you know what, I need you to work with your kid on learning and social emotional development, and that takes a lot of time and energy and will. And that, I don't need you to be distracted with, with bake sales, right? So there you have an example of a, of a school leader who's really shown leadership on, on helping parents prioritize. But on an individual level, it is hard to, you know, figure out that balance. For me, I take it, you know, I, I try to keep first in mind these priorities, and I know that, you know, there is now research that has shown the more volunteering you do in your kid's school does not lead to learning for that school, but work reading with your kid leads to <laughs> learning for that school. So I try to prioritize that, and then if there's time and energy left over, you know, I collect cereal box tops or whatever the freaking, you know, latest um, gambit is. But, uh, but you know, it's, it is true that I think these things add yeah. to the community of a school. And that is something that America does really well compared to these countries. And you wouldn't want to do away with it altogether. But I wonder if there aren't creative ways to build community that also lead to learning. Yeah. It's interesting because these very high-performing schools out there do have these contracts with parents most often, and it's all around the kind of parenting you're saying would support right. actually, you know, educational gains and all. 
Um, there are so many questions here. I, I want to get one more of, of my own in, and then, and then we'll bring you in, and we can get to some of these, which is just, I mean, the other main theme, I think, of, of the book, and it sort of supports the culture, what you were saying earlier, but it was just about rigor. And just the different, I mean, when you read this book, you just realize how different the rigor level is between sort of the US and these other countries. And, you know, I guess say more about that and on, about what you think we could do to, to drive more rigor in, in schools here. Well, I mean, I think this is a hard question, and probably there are many, many core members who would have better, more tactical ideas than I would. Um, I do think that. A, a sort of no-brainer prerequisite is to have a set of fewer, higher, better standards for what kids should know. Just, you know, so what to you quote the Common of, Core season. Yeah, what do you um, make about the controversy about the Common Core in this country? Like, what, what is the deal here in the US where there seems to be not a wild running towards and embracing yeah. fewer, more rigorous internationally benchmarks. Well, there are in some. Like, I just was in Kentucky for time working on a story because they were the first state in the country to adopt the Common Core, and which gave them the advantage of being able to shape the messaging about it before mm -hmm. it became a Tea Party Glenn Beck issue. And so they, you know, they, they really pushed it hard. They liked the idea that instead of being like Kentucky, they would be just as good as any other state. They, they, you know, it wasn't easy. I mean, I think the teachers I met with, there was a period of, of frustration as they, as they got up to speed on it, as everybody, because the kids hadn't been taught in Common Core, we were coming to them, of course. Um, but in the schools, with the leadership, coming back to the points that you often make, in the schools with strong leaders who gave them the time and space to collaborate over those standards, they actually just came to life. Like they really, they were able to work together in a common language that really made it much more interesting and, and exciting to do their jobs. And, and the students even in some cases were picking up on that, that kind of clarity of, okay, this is the standard for these three weeks, you know, and having a common clear vision seems like a, a pretty yeah. basic first step that all these countries have done as well at some point, yeah. And Kate Selker had a question, which I, I think relates to this in a way. She said, today we see a huge backlash against standardized testing in the US. How does the quantity and rigor of testing in the US compare with testing in other countries? And yeah. sort of how do you think about this testing question, even as it relates to the Common Core? I mean, right. yeah. Right, no, it seems like one of the themes running through all of this is quantity over quality in the US. You see this in a lot of ways. Like our kids do a lot of homework, they do a lot of standards, standardized tests, but they don't, like the quality of it is low. Um, so yeah, it is true that, we, that our kids do a lot of standardized tests, most of which are not particularly rigorous. Um, Finland does do randomized sampling standardized testing of schools to sort of see where they are, but it's not every single year. Um, and they do, at the end of, they do have a lot of classroom tests, and Finnish teenagers complain about this, but they're tests that are designed by the teachers. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of high school, they have a kind of epic end of high school exam that lasts 50 hours. I mean, it's over three weeks, it involves multiple days where you spend six hours just writing, you know? And like a, one of the recent essay questions was, why has there been no lasting peace in the Middle East? <laughs> so, 
you can see that this is like a whole level above even the New York State Regents exam. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, which we, you know, it's like, because people will come to me and be like, well, we have, we have end of year tests, you know, and that's, you know, they're a disaster or they're terrible or whatever. But that's an example of a country that there's like one bright finish line that's really hard. Um, but it, it does, I think, create clarity, at least, about, yeah. about how serious this is. Yeah, interesting. Uh, hi, my name is Rajiv. I work at Teachers America. My question uh, is about the, the amount of global awareness that is there in the high school curriculum uh, when you mm. compare American high, high school kids with the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, recently, there was this you know, American Indian woman who became Miss America, and they were these racist tweets, but my interest was in understanding who who were those tweets coming from, and interestingly, many of them were coming from high school kids. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to know, is it the lack of geography education, or is it a question on the critical thinking? Because we often hear these stories about Sikhs being confused for Muslims. So what are your thoughts on that? What could be the cause at high school level that causes this sort of lack of awareness about the rest of the world? So you're asking about the source of American ignorance about this is a big level. question. Um, at a high school level. At a high school level, okay. Um, I mean, whew. Uh, I'm glad this is you rather than me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly think that in general, Americans have been um, fairly removed from the rest of the world for a long time. You do see some, I think obviously there are schools and districts where um, American kids are much more aware. Maybe not districts, maybe that's a step too far. <laughs> schools where, the, where there is more awareness of the rest of the world. Um, so it's gonna depend on, on the leadership of that school. But um, there is an interesting trade deficit with exchange students <laughs> in the US. So, we take in way more than we send out. And you see that vary over time a bit, depending on the economy. And the other interesting thing is that uh, we take in most of the host families for exchange students from around the world are in the Midwest. So we have this phenomenon where we have all these kids coming in and spending like a year in like Ohio and St. Louis and you know, and then all the kids who leave tend to be from the coast. Um, so, there's an interesting kind of bifurcated world there. But I, you know, I certainly found these organizations that facilitate these exchange programs, like AFS is, a, is one of the big ones. Rotary clubs do it, Youth for Understanding. AFS was Amer originally called the American Field Service. They were an ambulance service during World War I and World War II of volunteer Americans who were driving ambulances in France and, and around Europe. And they saw so much carnage and heartbreak that they, after World War II, decided to reopen the organization as a cultural exchange, with a cultural exchange mission. So they organized thousands and thousands of kids to come here and go abroad. And, you know, it, it sounds like a fairly kind of old-fashioned approach to international awareness, but it does profoundly change the kids who do it, obviously given their age and how long they're in these countries. So I don't have the answer, is the bottom line, but uh, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I've got numerous other questions here that I really want to get to. Here's one from Ebony at Teach for America. She says, what kind of support do these countries give to their new teachers in their first two years? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think, I mean, I see some programs going on here that are better than 
what a lot of these countries are doing. So I think there's a lot of exciting movement on this, like within your within Teach for America as well. And so you know, it is true that in Finland you have a year to do student teaching, and it's in these kind of um, like teaching hospital version of schools. So it's in these really great schools. So your mentor is a very effective veteran teacher. And the teachers describe this process of, you know, they, they go up, they teach a class, and then afterward, there's like four people who observe them, and they give them like very pointed feedback. The Finns are not very um, <laughs> kind of delicate about this kind of thing. And again, you just see this kind of seriousness about the mm -hmm. process that is difficult for the teacher candidates, but really, really helpful. And doing that for a full year, you can imagine yeah. being really helpful. But certainly, once they get into the schools, I think it varies whether they're getting useful support. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, so you had a big article in the last issue of The Atlantic about the mission of American schools and how they focus too much on sports. Now, in, in my talk with Paul Tuff, for anyone who, who heard it, you know, I mean, we somehow got into this whole sports thing, and oh, I was I saying that my kids, like, I see it in my kids, like, mm -hmm. they're learning more in the way of the personal characteristics that I <laughs> think we've come to believe are really crucial in life, right. grit, et cetera, on the soccer field than, than in school, so that would make me really hesitant to give up right. sports, and I, I'm just wondering, but, but it's fascinating to think about that. So I mean, I, right. I wonder how you think about all that. Well, I think um, I hear this a lot from, from parents and, and from former athletes. You know, this is where I learned to persevere. This is where I learned to fail and get up again. And that's great. But um, maybe yeah. the solution to that is also to do that in the classroom, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, and not just in the soccer field. In, in some ways, games lend themselves to that. But certainly, you have not seen persistence until you've seen a Korean kid in a math class. I mean, just to generalize wildly. Like, these kids are learning those skills in school. Yeah. The problem with making sports part of school, I have no issue with sports. Like, sports are awesome. <laughs> but making it part of the mission of school has a tendency to dilute the academic focus mm -hmm. of school. And we've seen that in many, many, many different ways. I sort of hadn't appreciated until I spent time talking to principals about this, how much time they spend on sports, let alone money. But if you, there's very little research, of course, but we know that on average, we're spending about three times, two to three times per football player what we spend per math student. Football in particular is quite expensive and quite distracting uh, for all kinds of reasons. Beloved, obviously, all around the country. Wait, nationally? We spend that, that's, that's the stat? Well, the locals, the state fund, you know, the school funding. Right. Yes, right, yeah. So there's been. Because that's shocking, because yeah. in some places, football is just not getting any money. So it's just sort of a shocking fact. Right, well, even the, the school I went to for that story, Premont, Texas, this is a low income, little yeah. tiny town, majority Hispanic students. They were Nothing spending. Nothing in Texas surprises me, though. Okay. <laughs> You're right. It's like, take it off the table. They're spending $1,300 per football player and $600 per math student. They'd long since gotten rid of music and art in elementary school in cost cutting, but yeah. nobody had thought until the superintendent came along to cut back on the sports yeah. spending. I mean, you, for the, what I they were spending on sports, know. they could hire two teachers. As the newspaper editor, little piece of trivia for my high school um, newspaper in 
Dallas, Texas, I wrote this op-ed. Um, this was the only time I ever was actually called to the principal's office. <laughs> and it was about why in the world we would spend $3 million on the AstroTurf mm. um, <laughs> football field when we weren't investing in the debate team. <laughs> Good anyway, question. that was one of my what yeah, did the principal say? Prescient. What was the? They were wondering if this was the right forum for that question. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect forum for that question. So did it run? Oh well, I ran. I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah, ran, it ran because it had I was already in charge. <laughs> it had already run. See, yeah. this is what I'm talking about. I mean, because look. You and I know that the debate team people, I mean, those people go far. Like, I've yeah, seen those skills. Those yeah, <laughs> those skills are really, those really valuable. And, but I get no respect, no respect at all. Yeah. And, and so it's like kind of a bait and switch, you know? Like, we're giving this huge social and financial capital to, to an activity that vanishes after, for most kids, after age 18. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on to more. Did you have a question? Yeah. <laughs> In American society and culture, it seems to me that there's a lot of glorification of lifestyles and or careers that don't rely on academics. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like this probably feeds into what you were saying earlier yeah. that you know, in America, you know, the students don't care, whereas in, in the, the school, I think it was in, in Finland, you were saying that, it's like, of course we need an education. Do you see differences in these other societies, like in the yeah. culture and society in these other countries? Yes and no. I mean, I think, so in South Korea, Jenny, who's another student who's in the book, um, she was explaining to me there's no concept of the nerd. Like, it's not a concept. And so the social capital in high school is from academic conquest. And that's how you get in the newspaper. That's how you get to be cool, which is unimaginable. Like, I can't even get my head around it. So <laughs> that's true, right? That's a big deal. And that goes far, very far back, back to when Korea had some of the highest illiteracy rates in the world, which wasn't that long ago. They still had this kind of, you know, reverence for academic achievement. Um, but, you know, you look at a place like Canada, right, which has also, like the U.S., a pretty high level of child poverty, pretty high level of immigration, a pretty, you know, relatively consumptive culture because they're so, you know, poisoned by us. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> You know, they're very close to our culture in many ways, not every way. But, you know, Canadian kids, teenagers are dramatically outperforming American teenagers, particularly in math. So that fluctuation from subject to subject also relates back to what you're saying. I mean, we have not historically had a lot of kind of true admiration for math and science. So, and that's reflected in our relative performance in those subjects. So, um, yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, I actually think this is an area where, it w you know, our, our entertainment complex would, would help us potentially to, to, you know, make a bigger deal out of academic accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, it sounds kind of cheesy, but I, I can't, it's not, it's not the hardest problem ever to try to make, um, to try to make, you know, other kinds of pursuits more exciting. I don't think we've really tried. I mean, the kind of things that schools do, they're like, you know, math Olympics, and it's just lame mm. compared to the, what they, pu they pull out all the stops for, for sports. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, there's just so much in all this. Um, 
uh, another question from Twitter. What can the smartest kids in the world teach us about preventing high school dropouts? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so we now have, I think, 20 countries that have higher high school graduation rates than we do. Um, we haven't moved a lot on this over time. I, obviously, there are lots and lots of reasons, some of which you all know very well, as to why kids really drop out in reality. Some percentage of them, probably a small percentage, drop out because school is a joke. And I've met some of these kids. So that's part of what they can teach us. If school is not a joke, you don't lose those kids, right? And not, obviously not all of school is a joke, but there are certain classes that every kid can tell you in a school which ones they are that are a joke, or a principal who they never see, couldn't identify them in a lineup, right? So that's, that kind of thing, I think, could help us. But in a, again, helping kids connect the dots, right, mm. between what they're doing and what kind of car they're going to drive and how interesting their work's going to be seems yeah. like really fertile ground, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, can we sort of shift gears just for a minute and talk about the state of the public discussion around education <laughs> reform in the US? Okay. Um, I mean, first of all, did you cover things other than education before education? Before yeah, you... I actually spent 10 years avoiding education. That's what I thought you had told me. I didn't, it just, I mean, <laughs> It just seemed, I was, you know, I was ignorant about it, to go back to the American ignorance um, theme, but I, I thought that it was an impossible problem that, you know, seemed very squishy the way it was written about, and they were always sending, you know, the women writers off to cover school board meetings, and you never heard from them again. Like, it was not, <laughs> it, was, it was not like going to Afghanistan in the yeah. arc of a journalist's career. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, so every time some editor would try to get me to write about education, I would come up with a different idea that was about like, you know, crime or terrorism or something. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. I covered those things for a long time. I, I think I was obviously wrong about that. I think it's really yeah. interesting. Um, and, but I, I think the coverage of it has been pretty lame. Yeah. You know, typically. And, and what's your perspective on, it may not have been you. Some, uh, there was a journalist I once met who had covered actually, they had covered abortion. Mm -hmm. and that whole realm of issues. And then they switched to start covering education, and they were like, wow. Like, I thought my inbox was severe. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. It was you. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I never got so you. much hate mail until I wrote about Teach for America, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. what do we make of this? What is this all about? Do you have any perspective it on this? It is the single most dispiriting experience, right? I mean, I find it's, I mean, that's why I wrote this book. I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, this is, this is crazy. Yeah. It is like uh, really redundant and nasty and boring on some level, like the fights and, and factionalism in, in this debate. I don't know. What, what's your theory? What, I mean, you know. I mean, what do you think, well, before you ask me my theory, because I'm just <laughs> so confused. I mean, yeah. What do you think we should do about it? Do you have Do you have a thought on that? Do you have a big idea that you you haven't yet shared with folks, like how to get out of this ridiculously kind of vitriolic, polarized yeah. discussion? Um, I, 
you know, I don't have the answer. I do think that telling the stories of kids has always been my way out. You know, I yeah. don't know if that helps yeah. you, but you do have access to a lot of stories through the work that you all do. And, you know, the vast majority of reasonable humans do not remember anything else but stories. And so those stories are very, very powerful, especially when you let kids help you tell the story. It's harder to descend into the, you know, quagmire of debates about vouchers or whatever. I mean, it's like, oh, God, it's so boring. So keeping the lens focused on kids with, I think, you know, it's useful to have some research that um, yeah. helps you kind of yeah, have a spine helpful. to the... I, it was sort of heartening. I mean, I guess it was heartening or disheartening. I'm not sure which way to look at it. But I was talking recently with Ben Jensen, who sort of studies education globally. He's yeah. based in Australia. And he said he thinks the politics around education are more extreme in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's totally true. I mean, there's Mexico where well, it seems various. You know, just, <laughs> but it, it was at least heartening that maybe not every country will face this. And maybe they'll speed ahead. And then we can all learn from their examples. I, I don't know. I think know, that's but, true. I mean, there are, there are like strong feelings about it everywhere. And yeah. no place seems to like their system. No place. Yeah. It's like healthcare that way. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, this place seems right now particularly divided. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kate Cassis uh, asked the question, um, what do you say to people who claim that the only reason Finland, Poland, and South Korea do better than the US is because they don't educate everyone? Oh, that's not true. But I'm glad she brought it up because yeah. it, I, I sort of forget to mention it, but so many people think this yeah. that I really should be mentioning it. So a lot of people think that when you hear these test score measurements, which I'm not saying are perfect, but a lot of people think it's not a fair comparison because we test all of our kids and these countries just educate some of their kids. This hasn't been true for decades. Now we actually have a slightly lower enrollment rate up to age 15 than like at least a dozen countries in the world. So if anything, there are other countries educating more of their kids on a percentage basis. And the PISA test in particular is a representative sample of all kids, public school, private school, vocational school. So that's actually an easy mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. um, which is awesome. Um, Malika Marsh asked, have you, visited, have you visited countries in the Caribbean or Latin America? She was wondering, if so, what your observations were. No, this is where, I mean, I have a really unbelievably myopic, I mean, I've been very focused on the yeah. top achieving countries, so I have yeah. a lot to learn from yeah. the rest of the yeah. world. Um, so, I mean, just to go back to sort of the central kind of takeaway from your book, and not, not that there's one, but, but certainly one was around, for me, just as we've already discussed, this culture question. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, I'm trying to think, how do we move forward with that idea? Like, you know, when you think about the importance of that, right. I just wonder what else, right? So, so you're saying, first of all, we got to build a, a school system that people take seriously. And right. that has everything to do with, you know, how selective are we about who enters teaching, you know, how higher our standards for what kids should be doing in, in school. 
how much class we let kids miss to play out of state tournaments, right? Mm -hmm. Like that kind of that's the where sports, sports question. When yeah. you know, when your your math teacher's gone every five days because yeah. you know he's coaching. What um, about the parental engagement with kids that reinforces? I'm just like you know because I got to have yeah, an yeah. action plan here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what about what about the kind of explicit discussion or not? I mean, I'm curious, like when, when the kids in Finland were like, well, I've got to do well because that's how I get into university and that's how I get a good job. Yeah. Did you, I mean, it, it's so funny because I view that as sort of an idea that's pretty present in, in mm. this country. It's like, yeah, you do well, you get ahead. It's like the American dream or whatever. And yet it seems like kids aren't as clear about that. And I, I wonder if there's more that we need to do to sort of explicitly teach that. Right. I wonder if there are ways, because part of the challenge is anyone really can go to college in the United States. Like, even if you did really badly in school, as long as, you know, so yeah. there is a kind of truth to yeah. that idea. And you don't really want to change that, right? But I yeah. wonder if there's a way to help kids earlier on um, understand just how much money they'd be paying for classes without getting college credit, for example, yeah. because they're going to have to retake algebra in yeah. college in remedial math or whatever. Um, so that it sort of drives home that you cannot put this off forever, right? Yeah. And I think there's some people working on that, like helping kids you know, really visualize earlier on yeah. what this means. But I would also say as to elevating the seriousness of the teaching profession, I feel like that's something the rest of us could learn from you all. I mean, the only institution in the United States that has elevated the prestige of the teaching profession is Teach for America. So there's something to be learned there about how you do that. You know, I mean, that's a big deal. And I realize that it doesn't affect most of our teachers, yeah. but how can you do that in a way that is authentic. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's interesting. I, I'm, I mean, I've been thinking about that since last night. Like, yeah, how do we do that just pervasively across the board, not just for folks choosing to do teach for two years, but you know, forevermore. So someone needs to go out and figure out how to solve that problem. That would be um, great. I mean, back to this idea for two more seconds. I mean, so I had this this dinner conversation with my kid a year ago, my 11 year old. I mean, this, is, this was both disconcerting and I don't know. But, and, and maybe it'll show how, I mean, why, why does this just happen when he's 11? So we're sitting there, and I'd had a lot of trouble getting this kid to do his homework. You know, he's actually doing perfectly well in school. In fact, like, I don't think there was a grade other than perfect on the report card, right? Uh -huh. Like, he's doing perfectly well, but I know this kid is not pushing himself to actually learn how to write, to actually read. Like, he's not really pushing himself in school, not even remotely. Uh -huh. So we're at this, I'm at this family dinner, and I finally just said what I thought was the obvious, which of course he knew. I said, you do know, because he was telling me, you're so negative. You're just the most negative parent. You're the <laughs> only parent of all my kids who's negative. And I said, you do know why I'm always saying this, right? And he, he says, why? said, because do you realize like how well you do in elementary school, it's really true in New York, how well you do on a particular test determines what kind of middle school you go to and how well you do in your middle school determines what kind of high school you go to and that determines what kind of college you go to. So I say this hmm. and you know what his response was? He sat back and he literally said, oh, 
why didn't you say that before? Oh my God. And he was serious. I mean, this was perfectly serious. He's a really great kid. He's such a nice kid. He's like, oh. Huh. Now, so, so you're just assuming that he, he would know that. I would assume that my kid would know that. <laughs> but I obviously was assuming too much. And, and, so, and, and so he hadn't gotten that somehow. I mean, he may have just not heard it before in our household. But yeah, I mean... You know, there's sort of an assumption. Huh. I don't know. He somehow he hadn't heard it, um, I and he think clearly that, hadn't heard it at school. I don't think that's a fluke, right? Like, there's something that makes us uncomfortable about saying to kids, "Look, if you don't get serious about learning this math, you're going to have a very boring, difficult life." Like, we yeah. don't want to say that to a kid. Right. We're afraid we're, afraid we're going to crush their spirit, right? Plus Rather we, than trying to. Plus it's like, gosh, if they don't get in, it's really hard to get into these selective middle schools. It's really hard to get in the yeah. high schools. And you don't want, like, there's so much that's great about this kid. And he's an artist. And he's a this. And he's right. a that. And I think even, I mean, I don't want to say this for sure, but it may be that my spouse was like, you know, you don't want to make him so paranoid that it's like, gosh, if he doesn't get into this school. Right. So, right. you know, there are lots of it's things not that all might have that prevented matters. this conversation right. from happening. But I just think it's so fascinating. It's like, oh. Wish you told me that. So, so, in other words, maybe the dots are in plain sight, but nobody's helping kids connect yeah. them. You know. And the fact is that for our teachers, I mean, this is like we know that for the kids we're working with in our communities in this country, I mean, you know, there's just not visible evidence. You work hard in school, and things work out better. And so, explicitly teaching that is huge. Like that is a huge differentiator among our top right. performing teachers. It's just it's fascinating to think that actually this may need to go on way beyond the communities in which we're working. Right, right, so, right. Interesting. Anyway, that is interesting. Um, I keep checking the clock, and it's right on the button. Um, thank you so thank you. much, Amanda, for all your great thoughts. Um, for more information about Teach for All, visit teachforall.org.